Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. This is the best of Sports Business Radio as we take the week off. You're going to hear conversations with CNBC Sports Business reporter Darren Ravel. We'll talk about how the gas crunch is affecting NASCAR both on and off the track with Darren. We'll also talk about a potential ownership change for the Pittsburgh Steelers. You'll also hear my conversation with Tim Boyle, who is the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. Columbia Sportswear is one of the leading outerwear brands in the world. They're also a prime sponsor of a race team in the Tour de France, and we'll talk about how uh, Columbia Sportswear associated their brand with the Tour de France and why, even though the Tour de France brand has been uh, tainted in recent years. And finally... Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Famer with the Chicago Cubs. He's now a manager for the Cubs' single-A affiliate, the Peoria Chiefs. We'll catch up with him about his Hall of Fame career and the Cubs in general. Check out our website and blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can download our podcast anytime you want. Nathan Roach, any quick comments uh, as we take this week off? No, I really enjoyed the Ryan Sandberg interview. He's obviously a childhood hero of mine, and so it was great to catch up with him. And I'd love to see him in a manager position someday, maybe with the Cubs. Well, I think there's a good chance of that, and it's good that he's paying his dues and working his way up the ladder. Next week on our show, we are going to start getting into the Olympics, the Summer Olympics. We'll preview the Olympics, get down to the nitty-gritty. We're going to have several guests who will be joining us from Beijing over the next few weeks. You're not going to want to miss that. We will have the Beijing Summer Olympics covered from top to bottom. I'm Brian Berger. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Enjoy this week. We'll see you next week. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Darren Ravel. He's the sports business reporter for CNBC. You can check him out online at darrenravel.com. Darren, always good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. I always enjoy coming on, Brian. So you've had some amazing items on your blog lately. You're doing great stuff on TV. Congrats on that. But there's a few things that caught my eye that I want to discuss with you. Let's start by talking about the potential sale of the Pittsburgh Steelers, long owned by the Rooney family. And there's talk that at least controlling interest may be sold. But the part that you wrote about this week that I want to talk about that's really interesting is, you know, if Obama becomes president, there could be some potential changes to capital gains taxes and estate tax laws that could really uh, impact 
ownership of sports teams. And if you're on the fence about selling now or selling later, you write that it might behoove you to sell now. Explain. Well, I've always been told that, you know, you look at 2010 and the, when the estate tax is at 0%, it's basically repealed, where now it's at 45%. And, you, you know, you owe, ideally you'd like to die between January 1st, 2010 and December 31st, 2010. If you're a little bit old and you want to pass on your team and your family, it goes down at 0%. Now, some people say that's not going to last. But I always had my eye on 2010 as a year where either family Team, you know, teams were going to stay in the family, or we would see a lot of sales because it'd get passed down, and then the son or daughter would sell the team. So I always saw that as a year. But then when I was talking to a couple of people in the sports finance world, and they told me that now is the chance to sell the team, perhaps not because of passing it down, but because you have to pay a capital gains tax when you sell anything at a profit. Right now it's at 15%. When Barack Obama laid out his most recent plans, uh, uh, suffice it to say that sports owners are are voting Republican because the capital gains tax that is in his plans, and again, everything has to happen in D.C. for it to be approved, but is between 20 and 28%. If it it comes out the high end there at 28% and it's 15% now and you're paying 13% more on a billion-dollar franchise, that's a lot of money. And so that's why perhaps Sam Zell wants to get this Chicago Cubs thing over. And maybe that's why this just happens to be the year you know, that the Roonies crumble, even though there's all these other factors, including uh, the three of the brothers and wanting to be more involved in the casino business as the NFL tightens its restrictions on that. Yeah, it's interesting. It would be a shame because I think the Roonies, and I saw a recent vote in Sports Illustrated, uh, voted them the, the best owners in all of the NFL. They've been long, well-respected, and uh, it'd be a shame if the league lost them, but I guess we'll keep our eyes on that. So another thing you wrote about this week is the world of golf without Tiger Woods and the TV numbers, I guess, have plummeted as many expected they would. Uh, give us some of those details. I, I think we've actually gotten a unique look into the at least normal tournaments post-Tiger. And the reason for that is we always have a total control situation in the Wachovia Championship, where Tiger was the defending champion and, of course, didn't return, and the AT&T National, the tournament that Tiger hosted but didn't play well, uh, or at least into the final couple groupings last year, but hosted it and was there. Anthony Kim won both of those. Jim Furyk, Robert Allenby, those guys were in the top five. So what we saw was... A tournament where Tiger was a defending champion, he doesn't come back. The other guys play, whatever. That Those ratings on the final day are down 53%. The AT&T National, where Tiger wasn't in the uh, the final groupings in 2007, but he's not there, doesn't, doesn't host. Anthony Kim wins again, and you have almost the same guys down 48%. So at least in the regular tournaments, the non-majors, we're talking about, and we've always said this, but this is consistent now, 50% drop in ratings when Tiger is not playing. Now, the majors are going to be interesting without Tiger because um, the closest thing we've seen is the PGA, uh, the, the, the Players' Championship, which was down 8%. I think they got lucky in that Sergio was there at the end. But, uh, you know, this 
this is there's really going to be a compelling argument for a Tiger tour. The, the fact that we have non-Tiger makes the more compelling argument that Tiger can do this by himself. The sad thing is the PGA Tour knows that it's actually not that hard to organize a golf tournament, and that's the scary thing. They're the closest thing to an umbrella organization as the NCAA is. Uh, no, no one's going to put on another basketball league or another uh, in a football league, but but Tiger probably could go out by himself, recruit all the other golfers, and put the PGA Tour out of business. But wasn't there talk of that several years ago, Greg, yes, Greg Norman? Was. I don't, and it was it was all rumor, and you know, Tiger's guy Mark Steinberg never really said anything specific, but it would be really interesting, Brian, if that. You know, if that was really explored, because I don't think the PGA Tour has that much protection. The players are going to go to where the money is, and that's the simple fact. Hmm. Let's talk about NASCAR, something else you wrote about. The slow economy, the heavy gas prices, how are they affecting the world of NASCAR? They're, 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 they're the worst. I mean, I feel like at this point, there's the only effect we'll see in other sports is that uh, maybe you get a um, more of a corporate base, even more than we have now. If if the the average person stays away, they'll they'll fill it up. They'll they'll go to eight NFL home games. They'll be there. Um, but but at NASCAR, when you're asking for a Super Bowl every week, which is which is amazing, I give them credit. But this is where it falls. Super Bowl every week, and you have people in these gas guzzling RVs just. You know, usually going to 10 to 15 of these things back-to-back, spending the summer doing this. Right. You can't do it when it's 300 bucks, Brian. I mean, 300 bucks to fill up your RV, I don't even know if that's accurate, but it's got to be. It's got to be even more than that. Oh, I bet it's more than that. You know, because if it's it's 100 bucks to fill up uh, an Escalade, I mean, those things are like seven, eight times the size. Right. You know, that's not going to work. So so, so they're going to get slaughtered first here. Sticking with NASCAR, uh, Tony Stewart, one of the biggest names in NASCAR, he becomes part owner starting next season of now Stewart Haas uh, Racing. And, you know, by some people's accounts, is going to become the highest paid NASCAR driver in all of NASCAR, even higher than Little E. Uh, leaves Joe Gibbs Racing. They have a fantastic operation. What do you make of this transition? I think it comes at great risk. It's not like going to another team in baseball. I mean, we all know that it's all about technology and and your team, and 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 I know there's a sense from NASCAR insiders that if he doesn't win again this year, he might never win. Uh, and I, it's it's even more of a risk when you consider, yeah, you have the rewards of being a part owner, but then consider that what's going on with the NASCAR economy, right? That, that all all the inside sports sponsors. You know, the biggest ones are the car companies, and they can't, you know, Chevrolet is going to cut back at 12 tracks, and, and GM, uh, they, they, they're not filing for bankruptcy, apparently, but there's talk. I mean, it, it, I think it's crazy, unless you're just talking about Tony Stewart, you know, himself, but I think it's crazy to accept a part ownership role at this point, but maybe that's just the risk of doing it, you know, just getting a piece of the action. Unfortunately, the action seems like it's on the downturn. You know, let me ask you this. I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head. Do you think that we'll see it all, maybe sometime in the next five to ten years, a race team trying to develop a car that's powered on something other than gas? Yes. 
Well, we've had the we've had the whole IRL car that was the ethanol car that that uh, that Paul uh, Paul Dana drove the the guy who got killed. Um, you know, and I, I guess. I mean, I, I, funny. I asked Richard Petty if if they would do what they did in 1974, which is cut the races by 10 percent. That was just a symbolic thing because no one, you know, the lines at those gas stations were ridiculous, and people were angry that the the drivers were driving around, you know, and not going anywhere. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I'd say it's it's possible. The, the funny thing is, I mean, I'm at CNBC all day. Everyone talks about these alternatives, but the bottom line is, where the wide distribution of these alternatives aren't going to happen for for a decade. Right, a long, so, long time. So, and, and and it's nice to drive your hybrid car, but you're not going to reap the benefits of your your pay. In order to get back what you pay for a hybrid car, it takes five to ten years. So, nice to the environment, but I'm not doing it. Yeah. Last question. Alex Rodriguez and Cindy Rodriguez looks like they're calling it quits. Alex Rodriguez has a lucrative contract worth a few hundred million dollars. Uh, where does this leave A-Rod and his money? Was there a prenup? I know you wrote something about that, and at the prenup uh, there may be a loophole that allows Cindy Rodriguez to get more than she normally would. Where's A-Rod going to be with his uh, fortune? Well, uh, he's earned about $110 million on the field since they got married. Um and there definitely was a prenup, and it's acknowledged in the divorce documents. Although they don't, they they purposely say that they don't attach it to provide, you know, the ultimate exhibit of of what was actually agreed to. Hopefully, it's better than some other athletes' prenups, which just provided for fifty percent, which ruined the whole point of a prenup. But it says in in this document that was filed by Cynthia Rodriguez's lawyers that they're going to have to debate and explore the validity of the prenup, which I'm sure, you know, and that, that's where she wants to go. But I'm not sure how vague that a prenup can be if you sign the thing and, and someone sees you sign it and it's a legal document, unless they did it on a napkin, which I might not put past A-Rod at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, then, I, then I think it's probably legal. Yeah, he definitely hasn't shown to be the best business person. No. Good, good thing he has at least a few people around him who are taking good care thing, of that Good thing he has a manager. Oops, who's also Madonna's manager. Right. God, <laughs> what a mess that is. I know. Well, Darren, it's always great to catch up with you. I know you're going to be in Beijing at the Olympics, and we'll have you on uh, next month uh, when you're there in August. And uh, great stuff. You've been doing good stuff. Again, Darren Ravel, CNBC, sports business reporter. You can get him online at DarrenRavel.com. Darren, thanks for making time to join us. Thanks for having me, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday <laughs> or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Tim Boyle. He is the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. Columbia Sportswear is one of the largest outerwear brands in the world and the leading seller of ski wear in the United States. And Tim was named president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear back in 1989. Tim, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Well, thanks for having me uh, join you today. So, Tim, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the history of Columbia Sportswear, can you give us a brief snapshot of how the company got started back in 1938? <laughs> yeah, even though it seems like I'm old, I wasn't around then. Yeah. <laughs> my grandparents uh, immigrated from Germany and, and bought a little hat and cap company here in Portland. And uh, my dad was joined the company after my folks were married and ended up uh, running the business. Uh, and uh, it was about a million-dollar business in 1970. Uh, the company was a local distributor of headwear products and we actually had a little manufacturing facility we made some ski products and some fishing vests things like that uh 1970 we were doing about a million dollars in volume my dad died suddenly i was a senior in college and so i came home to help run the business and um my mom and i together took the business to a half a million dollars in sales in 1971 so uh, things were ugly for a long period of time we we got some help from some great people uh, at Nike uh, who were, you know, at that time that was a brand new company as well. And uh, we had an, an early um, Nike employee help us sort of to find the way. And we've been very uh, fortunate that we've now got a global business, uh, you know, approximating a billion four in sales. And we have almost 40, uh, 44% of our sales are outside the U.S. So we have a, a nice growing business. It's an amazing story, and you and your mother, Gert, have a real special relationship. And not everyone would be able to work so closely with a family member, but you and your mom really make it work. Maybe you can explain some of the dynamics between the two of you that make your relationship so successful. Well, it's really about uh, division of duties. And uh, so if we stay out of each other's way, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a critical success factor. And what would you say, you know, you talk about the growth of the company. What would you say was really the turning point where you said, okay, I can see that this is now going to become a a billion-dollar company instead of, you know, that million-dollar company that you talked about when it first started? Well, uh, there was a lot of turning points, but none of them uh, ever in the early days would have ever led me to believe that we would be anywhere near a billion dollars. So. That came much, much later, but uh, you know there were there were little minor successes along the way. Uh, certainly, one of them was uh, our um, relationship with the W.L. Gore Company, the makers of Gore-Tex, and we were we were their largest customer for many, many years, uh, producing lots and lots of Gore-Tex garments and sold them globally. Uh, and then we had uh, successes with other products, including our Bugaboo Parka, which is our famous interchange jacket, our Quad Parka, which is our one of the 
garments that launched our success in um, in waterfowl apparel. Um, and then there's some footwear successes along the way, including our Bugaboot, which has uh, you know really revolutionized the winter footwear business. So there have been a lot, uh, but none of them would ever have predicted that we could be as successful as we are today. You know, it's really amazing how technology and innovation, especially with garments, have changed over the past 10, 20 years. You know, I see you've got the Omni-Shade garment that protects the person wearing it from harmful ultraviolet rays. You've got Omni-Dry garments that help people stay dry. I mean, maybe you can talk about just how technology has helped you break through as well with some of your sales. Well, it's important for consumers to know why they should be buying a Columbia product versus any of the other myriad of of garment manufacturers. So uh, for us, our story is technology and protection uh, to allow you to stay outdoors longer. And so that's that's key for us. And uh, so we try to uh, really scour uh, technology um, developers in the textile business to find ways to help consumers stay protected, and whether it's from the sun or from heat. We have a new technology that we're going to be debuting in spring 09 that we call freezer fabric, which uh, we've got some garments made out of this, which are designed for saltwater fly fishing in uh, in the very hot areas of the, of the world around the equator. And that fabric is itself around 20% cooler than normal fabric. So we've made some garments out of that that we're going to be debuting in spring 09. But um, there's just a lot of technology that's going into our garments, which allows us to differentiate ourselves from from other people just selling T-shirts and hats and shirts and jackets. Sure. My guest is Tim Boyle. He is the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. You are sponsoring a Tour de France cycling team for the first time, Team High Road. They're doing pretty well. Mark Cavendish won the 12th stage of the Tour de France. Maybe you can talk about associating your brand with the Tour de France brand, because it's no secret, Tim, that the Tour de France brand has suffered a little bit in the last few years amidst doping allegations. What led you to want to get involved with the cycling team and with this race? Well, it was serendipitous. Uh, One of our uh, members of our board of directors, John Stanton, introduced us to Bob Stapleton. He and Bob had worked together in the cell phone business, and... uh, Bob uh, had purchased uh, the T-Mobile team uh, and was looking for some sponsorship and talked to us about how he was changing not only the management of the team to be much more uh, of a an American team style as opposed to a star-led, franchise-led uh, rider. Uh, and also he was explaining to us uh, his methodology for um, preventing doping uh, with his team. And we were very impressed with uh, with all those things, and um, that really encouraged us to, to become involved, and it's been a total home run. As you said, um, Mark Cavendish won his third uh, stage, in, and he's a brand-new rider. I think he's just 23. He might have had his 23rd birthday just a few days before the Tour de France started. So he's obviously going to be a, a very strong performer for a long period of time. Uh, yeah, for for a period of time over the weekend, last weekend we held uh, three out of the four jerseys, which represent the leader, uh, the sprinter, and uh, and the best new rider. So uh, it was it's been a real real home run for us. 
But why the Tour de France? There's so many different events you could sponsor, so many athletes you could sponsor. You know, from what I've read, you're really trying to reach out to the European market in, in a bigger way. Is that the main reason? Well, it's not just the Tour de France. So we, we sponsored the team, which, uh, which includes a women's team, which has had even more success than the men's team. Uh, and professional cycling has a, has a season which lasts around 270 days. So for Americans uh, who are aficionados, obviously, they, they follow that, but it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an event which is Super Bowl-esque in Europe in terms of its recognition and, uh, and viewership. So uh, this was really a European-centric um, investment for the company, but, uh, but we've had great results here in the U.S. as well. I would imagine that because many of the team sponsors have dropped in recent years that your company was able to get a, a pretty decent price. Uh, would that be an accurate assessment? Well, it's the largest investment we've ever made in a, in a promotional event. So, um, you know, it was significant and uh, it means a lot to the company. And, uh, you know, hopefully it, it means a lot to the, to the rest of the cycling community uh, that we're supporting this, this turnaround in, the, uh, in that area. Are you able to disclose how long you've signed on as a, a sponsor of this it's, team? It's a three-year deal, so uh, this is the first of the three years. So uh, we hope that the rest of the period of time is, is as successful, certainly. And then I'm just curious, and I would imagine that uh, many of the sponsors would have this concern, but if there were any doping allegations related to your team, do you have any kind of a, a moral clause that uh, you know basically says – if there's any of those problems, we don't want to have our brand associated with this team and we can get out of this. Well, our arrangement is with, with Bob Stapleton, the team owner, and he's got uh, significant uh, controls over his riders that would allow him to make changes if necessary uh, for the team and the health of the team. And so we're relying on him to to you know police the, the riders and make sure that he's got the, the proper group riding for him. Have you ever been over to uh, to watch the event in person? I haven't. I'm a I'm a newly minted <laughs> fan of the Tour de France and of professional cycling uh, in general. So uh, I'm learning every day. Well, I would guess before it's all said and done, you'll be making a trip over there in the next three years. I hope so. You are listening to Sports Business Radio. I'm joined by Tim Boyle. He's the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. Just a few questions left, Tim. I noticed by visiting Columbia.com that you don't sell your merchandise online. Is there a reason for that, and might that change in the future? Well, the, um, we, we don't sell our products directly online, but we have many great customers that sell online, that sell our products online. So uh, we want to make sure that we've got uh, strong, solid uh, customers uh, in the online world. And, uh, you know, it, it's possible that at, at some point in time we may sell direct, but right now we have a great selection of uh, our products available online through great online retailers. Last question for you. Uh, the Olympics are coming up in Beijing. I was in Beijing uh, last year and got to see firsthand just what an emerging economy uh, China has. I want to ask you, if you look into your crystal ball in the next 10 years, what is the most important market on earth for Columbia Sportswear? Well, my, my crystal ball is a little foggier than that. I can't really see out as many uh, years as, as maybe <laughs> I should, but... You know, there's no question that uh, these emerging markets will be strong performers for us, but we still have a lot of room to grow here in the U.S. and in, in Europe. So um, we've got lots of opportunities globally, and, um, you know, we've we got to concentrate on each one individually. But uh, I'm guessing that uh, over time, Europe and the U.S. will still lead, you know, for a period of time, will still lead the, the business. 
Well, Tim, I really appreciate you taking time to join us. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. Tim, it's a pleasure to finally catch up with you. Continued success to you and your company, and I'd love to have you on the show again sometime in the future. Well, thanks very much for talking with me. I really enjoyed it today. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton's serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Ryan Sandberg. He's a Chicago Cubs legend. He's a baseball Hall of Famer. He made 10 consecutive All-Star appearances and won nine consecutive gold gloves during his playing career. His 989 field percentage is a major league record at second base. He was the National League's MVP in 1984. Mr. Sandberg, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Hey, I appreciate it. Nice to be with you. So you're now the manager of the Peoria Chiefs, the single-A affiliate of the Chicago Cubs, and the Chiefs are going to be playing at Wrigley Field against the Kane County Cougars on Tuesday, July 29th at the 7.05 p.m. game. But the thing that makes this game special is it's believed to be the first minor league game at Wrigley Field. Your thoughts on returning to the field where your number is retired, but this time as a manager? Well, I think it's going to be a special night, uh, and and I think it is a fact that it will be the first minor league game played at Wrigley Field. Uh, we're looking at a, a crowd that could, could be between twenty five and 30,000, which would break a, uh, a Midwest League record, uh, obviously. Uh, but but it, it's going to be special also because uh, to have these, these young players from both of these teams uh, going out there and, and having the opportunity to play a full game at Wrigley Field, I mean, that doesn't happen every day for these, these young players. And whether it's a chance of a lifetime for these guys or whether it's a little, a little incentive or a, a, a little uh, shot in the future of where their home team could be, and maybe they'll play some other games there if, if they get after it and uh, and one day make it to the major league. So, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a great night. And uh, you know, for myself, managing the team, uh, watching the game from a, from uh, a similar vantage point in the home dugout, but uh, obviously with different duties, coaching third base, uh, managing the team. Uh, I'm very excited about it, uh, as well as uh, really the players from both teams. It must be tremendous insight that you can offer your players as someone who played there for so many years. Um, and then, you know, just letting them get a taste of here's what the big leagues could be like. And in the Fredling confines, by many people's opinion, uh, the best ballpark in all of Major League Baseball. 
Well, I have to agree with that. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'll uh, I'll definitely be able to show my team where the home locker room is. There'll be no problem with that. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And, <laughs> but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, my guys watch – Watch the Cubs games on TV. We have TVs here in the locker room here in Peoria and uh, often on the road, and we, and we follow the team. And, uh, you know, I really can't imagine what's, uh, what will be going through their mind uh, once they do take, uh, take foot on Wrigley Field and, and actually be there. So uh, a lot of history there. Uh, it's going to be a great evening and, uh, and really great for the players and the fans that will be there. You were always such an intelligent ball player, and, you know, obviously now you're managing. Do you ever have aspirations to maybe be sitting in that home dugout at Wrigley Field as the manager of the Chicago Cubs someday? Well, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm taking this one year at a time. This is my second year here in Peoria. I was given the opportunity uh, with, this, with this job last year, and I'm just trying to make the most out of it. Uh, I, I come to the ballpark uh, similar as I did as a player to, to learn something every day, and uh, you know the the major leagues is uh, is out there at, at uh, you know possibly there at the end uh, as as it is for these players and uh, I mentioned that to them that uh, you know we're kind of all in the same boat here we're all we're all at a ball um, we, we all have an opportunity here to uh, to uh, get pretty good at this and uh, and hopefully make this uh, our profession and and uh, hopefully one day make it to the major leagues so. Uh, you know that's 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 a goal of mine, but uh, you know I'm really concentrating on what I'm what I'm doing right now, and uh, like I say, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to do it the right way. I'm trying to do a good job and uh, and be good at it. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, I I really enjoy coming to the ballpark every day and uh, and having the wheels turning on on what the players need to do as individuals to move up the ladder, and also what what we need to do as a team to uh, to play well as a team. So. Uh, it's going great. Uh, I enjoy it, and if one day I can make it to the major leagues, you know that that'd be the ultimate. You know, I want to take you back to the 1980s for a moment when you were playing. I remember seeing a poster of you, Bears running back Walter Payton, and Bulls guard Michael Jordan. And I'm wondering, you know, it looks like you guys had a fun time making that poster or at that photo shoot. I'm just wondering how often you interacted with the two of them because the three of you really did own Chicago during the 1980s? Well, through those years, uh, you know, I'd see them at different events. Um, uh, all three of us were with, uh, with Chevy, uh, representing uh, uh, Chevy in, in the Chicagoland area. So there was the auto show in the wintertime that we'd all be at the, the, at the same uh, appearance. And, and uh, since, we, since we played uh, different times of the year, uh, it, um, it seems like we were fans of each other. Uh, you know, myself going to uh, the to Bulls game when Michael was playing in the wintertime in my off season, or going to the Bears game and, and Walter play, Walter Walter uh, Payton playing. And uh, you know, these guys would show up at Wrigley Field during the summertime when they weren't playing. So it's just, it was just a happening thing going on in Chicago. It was uh, some pretty good sports teams uh, going on uh, in the '80s in all all of those sports and uh, and. And Chicago is such a great city as far as fan support and uh, the the uh, old traditions that they have uh, with those teams. So it was great to be uh, connected with those guys uh, in that way. And uh, uh, we just tried to represent Chicago and, and for what uh, the Chicago fans uh, like and stand for. 
Well, you guys were all class acts and did a great job. Let me ask you this. Jordan obviously had a short-lived baseball career. Before he played or during his playing days, did he ever reach out to you for a tip or any advice? No, he sure didn't. Uh, I actually played Maybe against... he should have. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I played against him in a uh, Crosstown Classic game, and that's when the Cubs play the White Sox, but it's just for exhibition for the city. And this was all before 97 uh, when Interleague came into play. And uh, and Michael had worked his way up through the system, and I actually played a, a game against him at the Wrigley Field. And I remember he got a, a chopping base hit over third base for the uh, for the game winner that day. So I actually played on the same baseball field with Michael Jordan. <laughs> so that's kind of ironic. Pretty cool. We're joined by Ryan Sandberg. He's the Chicago Cubs legend, baseball Hall of Famer. We've got just a few minutes left. Uh, Ryan, Talk a little bit about the difference between the players today and the players of your era. Obviously, you're a manager now, but you see what's going on in baseball today. You watch it as, a, as an observer. What would you say are the two to three biggest differences between players today and players when you played? Well, uh, I believe when I played, I think the minor leagues was, uh, was top-notch baseball where, where it was tough to move up, up the ranks and it was tough to move up the, the ladder to, to one day be a major league player, where I think I think players are uh, uh, go through the system um, a little bit too fast and, and actually become major leaguers before they're ready for it, uh, ability wise, and and just having the fact that, uh, that that they didn't struggle enough in the minor leagues to uh, to really appreciate being in the major leagues uh, because I, I remember when I broke in. Uh, in 1981, 82, and uh, and I had my first taste in the major leagues. Uh, major league teams were stacked with players, and uh, and it was it was players that, had, that that would play together for 10, 12 years on the same team, and and to break into that unit was very very difficult. And then, but once you did, then you were you were there to stay, and and you could play the game. So, I think just uh, just the way that the the players come through there, and, uh, and and once they become major leaguers, I don't, I'm not sure if they know how to act or not. But uh, I think the talent in the major leagues today is is very good. I think I think players uh, I think players are very fast. I think they're strong. Uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I think we're back to a good good brand of baseball in the, in the past uh, maybe uh, two or three years. Uh, getting out of the, uh, the the steroid era, which uh, which I thought was very disturbing, uh, seeing the numbers that players were putting up, and and myself uh, being shortly retired from the game, couldn't relate to the to the the numbers and the stats and the and the, the way that the game was played. I think we're back now to uh, doing the little things, uh, uh, playing the game the way it's supposed to be, and uh, and really I like I like a lot of the players that are in the league today. Yeah, I mean. You, I know you had some strong comments around your Hall of Fame induction about performance-enhancing drugs and your disappointment at what the game had become. So you now think that uh, the game is being cleaned up. You're happy with the direction things are going? Oh, yes, no question. I think Major, base, major League Baseball handled it very aggressively. Uh, I think they got a oh, – I know they have a policy in place that is very, very strict and uh, – and can really, it really sends it really sends the message to the to the player, not only at the major league level but at the minor league level. So, uh, ba- baseball handles it very well, and uh, I, I I'm very confident that the game is definitely cleaned up, as as 
I can see with with the way that the game is played and uh, and the numbers are 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 numbers that I can relate to uh, during my years um, playing with the uh, the Andre Dawson's and the Mike Schmidt and uh, and playing against Dale Murphy. These guys these guys were power hitters, but we were talking about hitting uh, you know these guys hitting 35 to 40 home runs. And so during those years of the 50s and the 60s and the 70 home runs, I had a hard time watching watching that because I couldn't relate to it to all the great players that, that I played with and played against because they didn't do that. So uh, I, I do enjoy the game today. I think there's there's a lot of great players. Uh, just, just looking at the all-stars that were named yesterday, uh, I think there's some good quality there. So I think the game today is, is as popular as it's ever been with all the games on TV, with the fans that go to the ballpark. Uh, the new, new ballparks are fantastic. Uh, interleague play is great. So I think baseball is at a high right now. Last question for you. I've always admired your the job that you've done in the community. I know you have Rhino Kid Care. Um, talk about that a little bit. I know you work closely with your, your wife and your family on that, and maybe you can just tell us about that and uh, how you had the idea to start it. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that, first of all. And, uh, and people can look at that at rhinokidcare.com. Uh, my wife and I... Uh, uh, wanted to give something back and, and do something good, mainly in the city of Chicago. But we've also expanded to Peoria and to Phoenix, Arizona. But uh, what we do is uh, we, we we cater to and we bring the outside world to the families that are that have a, a sick child uh, in the hospital for uh, for extended periods of time. We bring the outside world to them and. And care to their needs, uh, whether it's haircuts or massages or uh, bus passes or or meals or celebrating holidays. Uh, whatever the needs are, uh, we raise money and we have volunteers that go into uh, ten ten children's hospitals in the Chicagoland area, uh, one down here in Peoria and one in Phoenix. And uh, we raise money by uh, we have a big uh, kickball tournament in Chicago at Grant Park. We raise uh, around 150,000 for that, and this this year we're doing the first annual um, uh, golf tournament on uh, on Waveland Golf Course right there by Wrigley Field. It's an old course, nine holes. And we That's hope great. To raise, hope to raise about 75,000 there, and we also take donations. But um, uh, it's something that uh, you know, my wife and I have five kids. Uh, they're all healthy, and uh, and. We're, we're blessed with that, so so we try and help and take care of uh, the, the families that are there and and whatever we can do. Uh, so uh, we get a we get a big we get a big um, big thrill out of that, and uh, and feel very hard touched when we go there and, and can help these families. Well, I grew up in Phoenix long ago before the Diamondbacks were there, and the Cubs were the adopted home team. And I followed your career closely. You've always conducted yourself with the utmost of class, and uh, I congratulate you on your job in Peoria, and I hope you rise through the ranks, and I'd love to see you managing the Cubs one day or being whatever you want to be, and I appreciate you taking time here on Sports Business Radio. Yeah, I appreciate it. Nice talking to you. You take care. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This 
This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training monitoring and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Brian Berger and Nathan Roach back with you on this, the best of Sports Business Radio. I hope you enjoyed our conversations from the past with Darren Ravel from CNBC, Tim Boyle, the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear, and Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, now the manager of the Peoria Chiefs, the single A affiliate of the Cubs. If you ever miss one of our episodes you can always download our best interviews and our podcast with the complete show just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page nathan again starting next week we're really going to roll up our sleeves and get into the beijing olympics these olympic games are going to be so important not only to the world's economy especially china's economy but really to so many athletes who, so, who have worked so hard to uh, climb this mountain for so many years. Well, and there's so much to talk about more this year than ever off the track and off the field and off the court. There's so much going on with these Olympics that there's going to be a ton to talk about. Lots of athletes have sponsorships. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with TV coverage as far as NBC is concerned? And just, you know, I've gone on record saying I think, and people are going to laugh at me, I think you will see at least one journalist who is imprisoned during these games for speaking freely and saying something that may offend the Chinese government. We will see protest zones have been set up, as we talked about on last week's show. Lots and lots going on, and we will be talking to people on the ground in Beijing who can give us a bird's-eye view of what's happening around the Summer Olympics. I'm Brian Berger for Nathan Roach. I hope you enjoyed this, the best of Sports Business Radio, and we look forward to being back with you live here on Sports Business Radio next week. Enjoy your week. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. That's why you're a smart business person. (laughs) Or at sportsbusinessradio.com.